Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Hey, Chloe. Hi, Raph. How you going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm uh, I'm enjoying. Oh. I'm I'm enjoying oh. the fact that we got a, like an extra bar and a half of the uh, the the intro tune in now with this new intro. I am too. But did you not just hear me gulp with surprise? Yeah, because I didn't I, say awesome. Oh, yes, I felt. I just heard. <laughs> it, I think. I think what's just happened is a collective gulp across the world. With all our listeners, I think they gulped at the same time as me. Are you okay, Ralph? Yeah, I, I, in fact, I am awesome. I was just, oh uh, I, was, I, was, I was kind of like thinking like, okay, I'm grooving along to that track and thinking like, yeah, that's cool. I haven't heard that sort of bass and drum feel for a while. So, um, yeah, I yeah. thought that was really awesome. But oh. then when you did it, that just, you just threw me. You threw me, Ralph. It'd be like me having an episode where I didn't mention Cage Line. Like, mm, you'd be like, okay, Chloe, you one okay? Push up. One push up. <laughs> Hi everyone. Yeah. How, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm really great. I'm I'm uh, I'm great. It's funny um, thinking about um, you know, like I'm so used to you saying awesome. It just kind of reminds me. Uh, I saw you know some film of me teaching shaman uh, teaser, and I was like, wow, I'm really. Like I'm really animated. Like I am. There's a lot of energy there, and I had this moment where I went, "Oh, I'm a lot." Like that's a lot. Like it's a it's a lot. And I kind of said to Shana, "It's a lot." And he said, "Chloe," he said, "For God's sakes, if you weren't like that, I would be worried about you. <laughs> that is you. And in fact, if you weren't with that much energy, I'd be asking if you were okay." I'm like, oh, right, okay, cool. <laughs> I just had a little moment. I have those moments. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so there you go. Anyway, be your authentic self. Yeah. Uh, always, and uh, yeah, we've all got we've all got things that that make us uniquely us, right? We do. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah. It's so, worth- what are we going to talk about today? Well, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, is it safe to leave your headrest up when you do. In, you know, inversions or hips hips higher than your shoulders, basically, on the reformer. Um, and that's something that we kind of alluded to just in passing a couple of episodes back. There was a listener question about it for in a DM, and uh, we just kind of you know did a 60-second answer on that and just basically said the short answer is yes, it is. Um, and uh, we've had kind of a tsunami of uh, you know, social messages and inbox things. Um, basically, people want to know more. Um, and cause this opinion <laughs> contradicts the orthodoxy quite a bit. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we're going to make a, you know, have, have take our time and have a, a sort of an in-depth uh, chat about this and, um, hopefully help you actually just become liberated from ever having to worry about whether someone's headrest is up or down and, 
to never having to basically pay that attention to that again because it's you realise it's not a thing. And also um, take a little tour through the evidence on uh, what contributes to neck injury and what doesn't contribute to neck injury. And spoiler alert, um, putting your headrest up is one of the things that doesn't contribute to neck injury. So um, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. So we've given you the spoiler alert, but we'd very much like you to stay for the entire episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> stay for the guts of it. It's kind of like when you read uh, a, an abstract, isn't it, Ralph? Yeah. Yeah. So you read an abstract and then it's like you want to know more, you want to be able to talk to that, you need to go into the guts of it. That's often where SciHub comes in. <laughs> um, okay. So before we get into that... I would really like to um, just have a chat about uh, a little bit of a, unfortunately, a bit of a theme in my DMs um, in the last week. And Raph, did, didn't we have some sort of, I would like some sort of intro to Chloe's DMs? And we, we spoke about this. Oh, is there an intro? Yep. So, so you can say, <laughs> okay, everybody, it's Chloe's DMs. That's, that's that's what I'm talking about, Raph. That is the one. Thank you. Liked that a lot. Um, so in Chloe's DMs uh, this week, there has been a theme that I am not happy about at all. Um, so the long and the short of it is that – long and the short of it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But basically it's regarding uh, some graduates – who have um, basically received both 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 awesome awesome teachers uh, can attest have have seen both of them teach multiple times. Um, both know how to promote motor learning uh, using you know evidence based best best practice etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Both know how to program and give a really great kick ass class. Um, both receiving kind of some scathing uh, feedback in regards to uh, teaching assessments um, done by various um, studio managers, whatever, whatever, uh, and that a whole heap of very minute detail in regards to what all the internal cues that that should have been used, all of the alignment protocols and I very much have air quotes around that because they're seriously not a thing. It ain't a protocol, but alignment protocols, e.g. knees over toes, shoulders down, shoulder blades in, you know, not not bending your wrist when when you're pulling the strap into when you're pulling the strap, like God forbid you bend your wrist, you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's a couple of things here that I'm not okay about, <laughs> A, is, well, basically all the feedback that I saw on both of these grads was everything that I would have told them not to do, as in, yay, they did an amazing job, um, in regards to queuing for motor learning. And if you're thinking, hey, I don't know about this, that's all right because we've got an, an earlier episode of Elephants that's all on queuing where Raf and I in-depth explore uh, the literature around promoting motor learning and uh, also give you some practical tools. So if you haven't listened to that one, please do. Um, but basically, yes, these two grads got absolutely slammed for uh, using current best practice in regards to promoting motor learning. 
And it was also uh, the other thing I wasn't stoked on was um, the way the feedback was delivered. So the feedback was delivered in pages, minutia, uh, and also with some ultimatums. Um, yeah. So if so if we were going to um, if we were going to assume that the person who gave that feedback had good intentions mm. and uh, you know was genuinely trying to help the person that they were giving the feedback to to get better, even though they were extremely misguided in both the content of the feedback and in the manner in which the feedback was delivered. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what feedback? You know, that person's almost certainly not listening because if they were a listener of Pilates Elephants, they wouldn't have done those things. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what? You know what? What feedback would you give to that person to uh, help them uh, have a steep learning curve and uh, lift their game? Mm, yeah, it's it's a toughie. So I guess in regards to how their feedback was delivered, well. Just word vomiting a whole heap of directions at someone and asking them to, in air quotes, fix 50 million things at once, uh, that, that's, that's not effective feedback. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if the feedback to uh, this grad was the ultimate outcome was, I need you, and, and by I, I mean the person giving the feedback, not me, but the, the feedback was they wanted this grad to give internal cues and alignment protocol, okay? So the feedback could have started off with, hey, yada, yada, really loved it when you did da, 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 da. That was really awesome, yada, yada, yada. Uh, What I need you to do is focus in on internal cues. E.g., when you said this, you could have said that, and this is the reason why. I also need you to focus on alignment protocol, e.g., when you did this, you could have done this and this is the reason why, okay? Now, and please, if anyone is just like coming, like you've been brushing your teeth or something and haven't heard the lead up to this and then you're here listening and Chloe's going, I need you to do internal cues, please rewind <laughs> and listen from the beginning. I want to make sure this is absolutely not taken out of context. Um, so that, that could have happened. And then the next step should have been a discussion, a sit down and a discussion with that that instructor, Okay. Uh, and and allowing the instructor to actually say, well, hey, these are the reasons that I didn't use internal cues and alignment protocol. These are what I said instead. And would you like to see some of the evidence around this? Because I've got a whole heap that I'd love to share with you. That to me is how that should have gone. In a perfect world. Right? Yeah. In a, in a perfect world. In a perfect world. So I guess then what we have to do because we know that for whatever reason that that person giving that feedback potentially their uh, their hands are somewhat tied due to the nature of the business or due to yeah they work in, uh, they what work they in think a their large organization that has particular expect rules about how they or do things. yeah and I'm just conject I don't I don't I don't want to I don't want to bring in specifics here uh, I want to be mindful of that but there could be that they could also you know just have genuinely stuck in the mud mindset because unfortunately there is still a large <laughs> there is still a large cohort out there uh, that has cognitive dissonance what, it's like what um, no what what uh, advice would you give to the person who received the feedback yeah and so I actually did give advice to because both of these grads 
reached out to me for specifically for advice. <laughs> They're like, hey, Chloe, we need your help. So um, the first thing was, you know, I asked them to set up a one-on-one with the person who gave them the feedback uh, to allow them to talk about the whys, the whys they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I said for them to be prepared that it could go a couple of different ways. There's a couple of options here. A, the person you're speaking to is going to be curious and is going to be interested in knowing knowing the research and, and going there. And then, you know, and that's probably a pretty perfect world outcome. Yeah. Uh, B, the person's going to go, uh, it's just a hard no. I need you to do it this way. That's because that's what the business expects and that's what our clientele expect and that's uh, – made us money for this amount of time. You know, you hear all of this and we're not going to change. So you either need to do that or you no longer have classes with us. Yeah. Um, And I think the third option I was like, well, you can skip all of that and just (laughs) toe the line if that's what you want, like if you need to. Um, Or just be prepared also, prepare yourself that if they do come to you with a no you got to do it this way or it's the highway, just be really cool and confident um, that that's okay and that new opportunities almost always and, and newer, better opportunities almost always arise from situations like this. And, that, and then there's that time where we're like the, the caterpillar turning into the butterfly and I, uh, I know that both myself and uh, quite a few of my close colleagues have had a very similar experience to this, and and there became there came a point in our careers. And I can definitely speak for me, where I was like, actually, no, I can no longer align myself with uh, a studio that isn't propelling the industry forward and isn't allowing me to to step up and. Uh, practice current best practice um, and evolve uh, as an instructor. So for me, that was then a, a no-brainer. I felt really comf- confident in moving to a studio that that allowed me to embrace that. Hmm. Yeah. What about you, Raf? Um, yeah, I would, I would say the same. I would basically just say, hey, um, if, uh, you know, firstly, I would reach out and, to that person who provided the feedback and say, hey, could we, could we talk this through? you know, face-to-face, whether that's sort of on a Zoom call or, or in person. Um, and, I'd li- you know, I'd like to un- understand a bit more about your reasons. And if you're open to it, I'd like to share my reasons for, for doing it the way I did it. Um, and, you know, from that, you'll get a sense of, of how open or not open that person would be and uh, whether it's a good fit. And uh, I think, you know, if, if, <laughs> if you're at this audition and it's, it's plainly not a good fit, um, great. You successfully uh, avoided having to get a job there and work there for six months before you realise it's not a good fit. Mm, so, so neither yeah. of these are auditions, by the way, Raf. Neither uh, of these are auditions. Both of these both work there and have worked there for some time. Mm, all right. Well, mm. um, at least at least uh, you know six more months haven't gone by. You know, <laughs> with you yeah. living living in. Uh, 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 you know, in false uh, the false sense that you're in a, pl- a workplace that shares your values when, in fact, uh, you're not. Yeah. So sorry if I didn't set that scenario mm. up enough. Both of these, both of these are instructors who have evolved whilst being at the same studio. So they've evolved there. So Raph, I feel like you and I could probably attest 
to this, you know, both of, both you and I, except you were in a you're in a pretty cool position because you're the owner. Well, but um, I mean, we we were in, uh, you know, we were a licensed training centre for Stop Pilates um, when I had my kind of evolutionary, you know, wake up. And uh, this was kind of around from 2009 to about 2012 was the process for, for me, the process of like becoming aware of uh, science and research and that you could actually just look stuff up on Google Scholar and find out the objectively true answers to empirical questions. Um, and that, you know, Pilates workshops weren't necessarily the best source of information on all facts about how the universe works. Um, or how the 50 million things to do with sophism. And yes, yeah, so, copyright. <laughs> and so we we found ourselves uh you know I found myself kind of like starting to teach the stop pilates courses a little bit differently, add in little explanations and subtexts and sometimes leave out certain things that were just blatantly not in line with science and um eventually you know, it got to the point where we basically weren't teaching Stop Pilates anymore and it was like, yeah, we kind of need to, you know, acknowledge that this is no longer a good fit and that's when we split with, with Stop Pilates. We realised, yeah, we're actually, we're actually not, not in alignment with, you know, with this anymore. So that was 2012. Mm. Mm. So yeah, so both of these. So that's why I quite um, quite like the the imagery of the the caterpillar to, but, to mm. butterfly, mm. you know. And then it might be you now. might need to fly. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you quit your job one day, you might have a podcast with Chloe. <laughs> hey, um, let's let's get on. Let's get on to the. The, Let's the, do it. So the, anyway, the props to props to you grads. Thanks for reaching out to me. Reach out anytime and um yeah, you you know your stuff. Hold yeah. true that you know your stuff as well. Mm, you're awesome. Mm. Okay. Let's do it. So mm, this is uh this is doing the rounds big time at the moment. Um I I've got to admit it was probably us that kicked it off. <laughs> for it to be doing the rounds, well, the who, whole was, headrest up, headrest down. Was it Alison who sent us in a question about it a few weeks back? So it was interesting. A few things happened at the same time. I got curious about it. I got That's curious right. about it and I got curious about it with my trainers. Slacked, because you actually slacked me that week and then like two days later we had a question. A question yeah, I think it was from Alison so, Alec. Yeah, so I I just started, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a I like to think I'm a critical thinker and I'm constantly honing it. And this whole headrest up, and you know, I walked past one of my trainers, kind of saying the rule, and then I stopped for a moment and went, "Ooh, it's not often that we like that we say a rule. If we're going to say it and it's a rule, and we're going to be specific, that is is rule, right? Then I need to know that that rule is backed up by evidence." because otherwise we shouldn't be making it a rule. So that was a real light bulb moment for me to go, okay, wow, I have never thought critically about why, why I ensure my students, my clients, myself, that my headrest is flat as a tack prior to going into any hip bridging or any inversions, aka overhead, short spine, long spine, etc. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then we got a DM where Alison was like, hey, wanting to ask about this. And then I was like, yeah, cool. It's interesting you're thinking about it. And then it's kind of all kind of exploded uh, and it's it's kind of made its way through. It's kind of, okay, it's polarizing. It seems to be a polarizing topic. People are either like, yeah, cool, yeah, right, we didn't think it was a rule, makes sense, yeah, no, I haven't been worrying about that for years, all good. 
And then there's a there's the other camp that are just just bringing down the roof with, oh my god, how dare you say something like that? That's so incredibly dangerous. So it's very it's a big deal in the Pilates mm. stratosphere. Mm. Who would have thought ah. it was so controversial? Yeah, um. like so I know, I know. <laughs> Who would? But it is. It's a it's a biggie. So yeah, I think it uh, it's it's deserving of a. Let's mm, go there. There's mm, an episode. Mm, mm. Mm. Um, all right. So the basic elephant here, you know, which is the kind of like thing that we all for years have just assumed to be true, but in fact is turned out to be not true, um, is that uh, leaving your head rest up or basically, you know, having something under your head, having your head raised when you do an inversion uh, is dangerous for your neck. So basically, if you're thinking about something on the reformer, stuff like shoulder bridge with your feet on the bar where you lift your hips up or things where your feet are in straps and you're doing inversions like, you know, short spine, long spine, you know, things with your arms in straps like overhead, uh, you know, you should have your headrest down at all times. And then on the mat, things like rollover and jackknife and, you know, all of those ones where you roll backwards, basically, um, mm-hmm. uh, rocker with open legs, etc. You should not, bridge. yeah, mm. you should have, you should have your head flat on the floor, no head props. Um, you know, so that was kind of drilled into me as a kid, you know, um, metaphorically as a Pilates <laughs> kid. Back when you um, were a, 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 a um, baby teacher. Yeah. When I was just yes, a little yeah. ba- baby, baby horse <laughs> teacher. Baby horse. Yeah. Um, when you're one of the baby horses. I can't, I just can't kind of imagine you as a baby horse. Yeah. It's weird to think of your mentor as a baby horse. Like it's really hard. Don't, don't you think it's kind of like sometimes where baby it takes Yoda. you quite a you know, well, yeah, baby Yoda, or when you when it takes you quite a while to visualize, like you got to. It takes you a while to get to a point where you can understand that maybe your mum and dad were once kids. Yeah, it's kind of the same with mentors, but yeah. <laughs> so anyway, when you when yeah. when my mentor Raphael Bender was a baby horse. Yeah, I didn't know nothing about nothing. I was just starry eyed. And uh, they told me. And we were told, put, we did what we were told, yeah, right? put the headrest up. I was like, okay, duly noted, put the headrest up. And then basically every time then, since then for about 15 years since I taught Pilates, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to do shoulder bridge. So put your headrest down. <laughs> do you say it like that? Yeah. Down. <laughs> no, that's how I say it now with a kind of a knowing and satirical tone. Right. You know, right. back in the yeah. day I would have said. Wouldn't headrest have down. It wouldn't have said the tone. <laughs> You must put your headrest up. <laughs> no, no I would have said so. You know, just check if your headrest is up, and if it is, put it all the way down, please. Yeah, same as is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that until about a month ago, Raf. So yeah. yeah. Well, that's the only reason I stopped doing it three years ago is I stopped teaching three years ago. So. <laughs> um, but you know, if I had been teaching last month, I would have been doing it last month. So right. um, yeah, lucky me. Um, so, all right. So, so the, and, and the basic kind of, you know, so the basic assumption there, you know, is that you can injure your neck if you leave yeah. your head rest up. Right. And so the, the assumption there, you know, if we kind of like, um, double click on that, okay. Um, you know, how might you injure your neck? Well, it's not really specified. I was never told, you know, w- you know, the particular biomechanics no, of why, that, never, why that's right? And I, and hey, I never asked either. No, neither did I. Which because, is weird seeing as I ask why about absolutely everything now. <laughs> right. But I think that's part of uh, developing critical thinking skills is when I was taught this stuff, yeah. I was very uncritical of it. I was like, mm, okay, you say, it, you say it's the case, it's written in the manual, therefore it must be, you know, 
true mm. from the heavens, mm. you know, on tablets mm. of stone. Um, but, you know, newsflash, just because someone wrote something down doesn't make it true. Mm. Um, so anyway, so, all right, so the assumption is that uh, you could injure your neck if you have your head rest up when you go into an inverted position. And, you know, if we double click on that, well, the, the assumption under that must be that if your neck is, you know, fully flexed or, you know, quite flexed, because in a shoulder bridge with your head rest up on the reformer, well, the head rest doesn't go up that far and your hips don't go that high in a shoulder bridge. So your neck is not fully flexed. You know, right. you know, like, like if you're just sitting at the moment, you know, if you fully flex your neck, you can actually touch your chin on your chest if you're like most people, yeah. right? So you can flex your neck to pretty close to 90 degrees. Um, whereas on, in the reformer, on reformer, on, in shoulder bridge, you probably don't get, you know, very close to that alignment. So you're not at, not at end range. Mm, um, agreed. But, but the assumption there is that, you know, when your neck is more flexed, uh, and then you weight bear on it, that that, you know, somehow is more dangerous, the next interval, more vulnerable position. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that you might injure yourself. And so, all right, so uh, assuming that we all agree that that's the assumption, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to agree yeah. on. Um, yep. You know, let's, let's sort of unpack that. So the first thing is when we think about injury, like injury as a sort of um, – generic category of, you know, uh, rather than neck, neck, you know, neck injury specifically, injury risk is multifactorial. So injury, you know, by which I mean, there's more than one factor that contributes to, you know, whether someone does or doesn't sustain an injury. So like purely, you know, measuring the biomechanical forces on someone's knee or back or whatever won't tell you enough to predict whether they're going to have an injury. Like, you know, there are many things that actually have to, the planets that have to align in order for somebody to become injured. So for example, in a uh, review in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science in Sports in 2017, um, what they found was that in elite youth athletes, um, the combination of an increase in training load, training intensity, and at the same time decreasing the, their sleep uh, volume resulted in a higher risk for injury compared to no change in these variables. And they had like more than double the injury risk when you did all of those three things together. But if you just did wow. one or two of them, it didn't really significantly raise the risk. Now, if you, when you, when you, they did those three things, if they also um, had this thing called competence-based self-esteem, which means that they basically their self-esteem is dependent on how well they do, right? So if you if you if you win, you feel good about yourself, you got high self-esteem. Whereas if you come second, you have low self-esteem. You know, like you you feel bad about yourself. So it's yeah. it's really having an external kind of locus of control for your self-esteem, where your self-esteem is dependent on your, you know, how well you do in the world. Right. So rather than just sort of, you know, okay, I lost this race, but that doesn't make me a bad person, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so if they if they also had that, you know, competence-based self-esteem, that risk of more than double went up to almost three and a half times the chance of being injured. Wow. Right. So wow. So it's multifactorial, right? And and most of those factors wow. are not physical, right? Sleep well, so wait a second. So self-esteem. Yeah. Affected them. Is self-esteem considered the same as self-efficacy, or no? Two different. No, this is no. It's different. Self-esteem. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that you know, I mean, is that, fascinating. So this study doesn't talk 
at all about the possible mechanisms, you know, why that's the case, but I could speculate and say that, I guess, that, all right, well, you know, when you feel good about yourself, you know, you, there's changes to your physiology, right? So, you know, when you feel, you know, just imagine you've achieved something really awesome that you're really proud of and you're feeling like, gee, I did a good thing, you know, I'm really proud of myself for, for achieving that. Maybe something really big that you did, like, you know, raising a child or graduating from college or, you know, like saving a duck from getting run over or, you know, like just doing, you did something really good. You did a good thing and you feel good. Well, what happens? You get flushed with all of these, you know, positive feel good hormones, right? Which lower your cortisol levels. Okay. And cortisol is a fight or flight uh, hormone. It's released from your adrenal glands um, on top of your kidneys and it is a stress hormone. And what it does is it, uh, you know, it's like if you are injured or if you are, you know, need to run from a predator or whatever, it basically suppresses pain and it, uh, you know, pulls blood out of your digestive system and, uh, you know, pumps the blood to your muscles so that you're ready to run or fight or hide, right? And that's really awesome if you've got a predator chasing you. Um, but if you have lots of cortisol floating around in your system, um, it suppresses pain. And it also, another thing it pulls blood out of, apart from your digestive system, is it pulls blood out of your immune system, right? Because if you want, if you've got a saber-toothed tiger chasing you, right, who cares if you're fighting off a virus? Like, let the virus come on, to, like, like, it's, you know, the saber-toothed tiger is the immediate threat. So we, we move we move the blood away from our immune system, away from our digestive system, and away from a bunch of other things. Um, and put it all into our muscles so we can run or fight. And and that's that's a good, healthy adaptation, you know, if you've got a saber-toothed tiger chasing you. But you don't want to have that, you know, low-level, you know, stress going on all the time because it suppresses immune function, it suppresses digestion, it suppresses a bunch of other bodily, you know, processes that need to happen. So if you've got low self-esteem because you came second in the race, Right, and you're feeling bad about yourself, you're getting cortisol released into your body, you're getting all those stress hormones that probably suppresses immune function, suppresses you know, a lot of anabolic processes like you know, building up you know, tissues and whatever. And probably you know, through that mechanism, I would guess, again, this is all speculation, but based on the, the basic physiology, I would guess that that might be one way that that, that sort of psycho, psychological trait could contribute to increased you know, physical injury. Mm. Mm. So yeah. it's really fascinating to me. Yeah. So um so that was you know, that that was I found that very interesting. And then um yeah. then it's specifically in the neck. Um there was a study in twenty nineteen called The Effect of Psychosocial Measures of Resilience and Self Efficacy in Patients with Neck and Lower Back Pain. And this was in the journal Spine from twenty nineteen. Um, and what they found was that uh resilience and self efficacy, so um Resilience being um, basically you sort of, you know, it's water off a duck's back when bad stuff happens. You know, you just don't bother. You just kind of dust yourself off and keep going. Um, and then self-efficacy is your sort of sense of confidence that you can achieve. You can basically, you can, you can uh, direct your own behavior. So, right, you know, it's like you've got confidence that if you say you're going to do a thing, you'll do it. Or if you say you're not going to have that piece of chocolate cake, you won't have it. Like it, it's your confidence that you can control your own behavior, basically. So resilience and self-efficacy, they found were strongly negatively correlated with neck disability. So what they found there was um, 
the higher your resilience, the lower your disability, and the higher your self-efficacy, the lower your disability. And with resilience, the correlation was 0.61, which is pretty high. And with self-efficacy, the correlation was 0.69, which is get verging on like very high correlation. So basically, if you are, you know, psychologically resilient and confident in your own you know, command of your own behaviours, um, that sig- you know very significantly reduces the amount of disability that people have from uh, you know neck-related injuries. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Um, so yeah. So so you know so psychological factors so, are, yeah. are important in injury. You know, they're not the only factors. Injury is multifactorial. Um. Uh, and you know, and then we think about you know well. Let's, you know, let's double click on the physical, right? So we're thinking about we're in shoulder bridge or maybe we're in, we're doing rollover on the mat, okay? And we've got a prop under the person's head because it was more comfortable for them with a prop under their head doing the, the hundreds or whatever. Um, but now we're going to do, go into the, the rollover. So we're thinking I better remove the prop, right? Because if they do the rollover, their neck will be fully flexed and they'll have this prop under their head, you know, jamming their neck into even more flexion and then they're going to fully load that neck by putting their whole body weight on it Um, and so presumably you know we're thinking like okay there's going to be an injury so what would the injury be right you know would it be a pulled muscle would it be a sprained ligament would it be a disc bulge Um, you know what might happen Um, um, so uh, what this there's a study in um, systematic review and meta-analysis of uh, uh, neck spine findings, so cervical spine findings on MRI in people with neck pain compared with pain-free controls, a systematic review and meta-analysis from the Journal of Magnetic Resonance Imaging in 2019. Um, and what they found was there was no difference on MRI, MRI between people with whiplash-associated disorder, so it's people who've had basically motor vehicle accidents where they've injured their neck, uh, chronic non-specific neck pain, and which is basically ninety-five percent of people with neck pain, um, and pain-free people. So the only one difference they found was that people with non-specific neck pain have a muscle that is kind of in the suboccipital um, region, sort of like under the sort of base of your skull there, called the rectus capitis posterior major. It's a really freaking small muscle. <laughs> Um, wow, it's a really fancy name. Yeah, yeah. Um, so rectus means straight, capitus means your head, posterior is the back, and major is the bigger one. So there's presumably that's a rectus, capitus, posterior, minor as well. Right. Like <laughs> um, so, um, but it's just basically a muscle that goes from the sort of the, the upper part of your neck to the base of your skull, right? It's one of the, right. you know, the suboccipital yeah. essentially. Um, and so what they found in this study was that there were no detectable differences in things like uh, the, the amount of disc degeneration, uh, the number of disc bulges, you know, any of that stuff. There, there was no differences between the people with and without neck pain. However, there was a difference in people with non-specific neck pain had a smaller cross-sectional area for the uh, rectus capitis posterior major, but none of the other neck muscles, <laughs> just the rectus capitis posterior major. What? So, you know, file that one under. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So, <laughs> what, have we, what have we established here? We Well, we know that, that predictors of injury prediction is complex and multifactorial. Right. So, if we subject, right? if we subject you know, 100 people to the exact same biomechanical load variables, 
not all of them will become injured, right? And and predicting which ones become injured is not as simple as looking at what angle was their joint at or how much force was on the joint. It is also important to understand, okay, how were they sleeping? How's their self-esteem? How's their self-efficacy? How's their psychological resilience? You know, are they under stress at home, at work? Are they, do they have exams coming up? And probably a lot of other things like, have they been eating well? You know, how's their relationship with their family, their significant other? All of that stuff probably plays mm. a role. Mm. So why the concern with having the headrest up? I, I, I get that the, in you know, you predictor of any sort of injury is, is multi, multifactorial. Mm-hmm. Always, etc. Why? Why are people so nervous to load the cervical? Well, I think uh, I don't know, but my guess is that um, you know we've been scared a lot with uh, spinal flexion in the lower back, um, right. with the fear, you know, fear of disc bulge, and that my 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 guess, my assumption would be that a lot of people who are like somewhat anatomically literate. Um, and understand about such things, you know, would be concerned about disc bulge in the neck under, you know, fully loaded neck flexion. That, you know, I don't know that's true, but that would be my assumption. Okay. So what do we know about loaded flexion in the spine, in the lumbar spine, for instance? Well, we know we know some things about loaded flexion in the neck, actually. Um, ah, okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, well, firstly, there is a there was a 20-year prospective longitudinal study of uh, cervical spine degeneration in a volunteer cohort um, assessed by MRI with 20-year follow-up. And this was uh, published in 2018 um, by Daimon et al. And what they found was, quote, neck posture was unrelated to developing either disc bulge or symptoms over 20 years. So they MRI'd people, you know, in 1998, um, and then they, they measured their neck posture. You know, they were either lordotic or non-lordotic posture. Um, and then 20 years later, they followed those people up and they measured their neck posture again and MRI'd them again. And what they found was their posture in 1998, like whether they had, you know, flat necks or good cervical lordosis or whatever, did not predict whether they had a disc bulge 20 years later um, and also did not predict uh, whether they had any pain in their neck. 20 years later. So basically, posture was unrelated um, to uh, disc bulge or symptoms. But what they found was that there was an increased rate of disc degeneration at C7T1, so the base of the, of the neck where it joins onto the thoracic, for non-lordotic posture. So people who had a kind of a flatter you know, neck shape, um, they had increased rate of disc degeneration at C7T1 only, and, but that was unrelated to symptoms. I was going to say, was it, yeah, it was asymptomatic. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So neck posture, you know, uh, doesn't seem to be related to developing disc bulge and also doesn't seem to be related to developing symptoms. Um, and we've got a couple of studies in uh, on loaded flexion. In fact, the actual studies that people talk about when they talk about loaded flexion, like forward bending in the low back, they're actually done on neck vertebrae from pigs. So the uh, the studies uh, Callahan and McGill two thousand and one from uh, Canada, um, War, I think it's Waterloo University. I have to McMaster. I have to look it up. One of the two. Um, and basically, what they did was they cut out pig 
cervical spines. Um, they're C3, C4 segments and uh, stuck them in a jig and compressed them and bent them full range back and forth uh, for 24 hours, once per second. Um, and then that experiment was has been repeated by a couple of times by, you know, by different labs and by the same lab. And what they basically find is that uh, when you compress a spine in a machine and then vibrate it for 24 hours, it doesn't like it. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Weird that. <laughs> um, uh, and so what they do is they, they cut out the spine. Like, so it's not it's not a whole pig neck. It's just the bones. And yeah, because it hasn't got any of the – no oh, muscles. it does have the ligaments. Yeah, that, it's the osteoligamentous spine. So it's basically the, the the bones and the deep ligaments. You know, so like right. the posterior longitudinal ligament, the anterior longitudinal ligament. You know, um, but they don't have. I don't. I'm pretty sure they don't leave the supraspinous ligament. There's certainly no, you know, like nuchal fascia or anything like that. Um, so anyway, what they find in these experiments uh, very consistently is that. Uh, all of the spines in that are that are compressed heavily are injured, and basically none of the ones that are compressed lightly are injured. Um, and the ones that are compressed heavily are injured, regardless of whether they are fully flexed and extended, or regardless of whether they are just kept within basically neutral. Um, oh. So the rate of injury is the same, but the 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 difference between those groups, the ones that are fully flexed and extended versus the ones that are kept neutral, is where the injuries occur. Right, so if in in the in the the spines that are fully flexed and extended, like basically flexed and extended through full range once per second for twenty four hours, whilst under high compressive load, um, what we find is the very uh, back of the vertebra is injured. You know, it's called the pars interarticularis. The it's just like the back part of the vertebra, basically. Yeah, I, t- I totally knew that. Um, well, the, <laughs> how do you even say the other bit? Pars what? Pars, P-A-R-S, yeah. interarticularis. Um, and for interarticularis. Those, yeah, so for those, for our listeners. Say that a few times at home, you guys. Yeah, inter, so I can't even say it again. Well, for our <laughs> listeners in the US, it'll be hard because we don't say our R's very clearly. But um, <laughs> the pars, P-A-R-S, is Latin yeah. for part, right? Uh, so that's right. the part. And inter. I-N-T-E-R means in between. And so it's the part in between. Yeah. Articularis is joint, you know, and articulate. Uh, Articulate, right? So uh, it's the pars interarticularis is the part in between the joints. And at the back part of your vertebrae, you have um, two joints on each vertebra. One is uh, your superior facets and your inferior facets. So you've got your, uh your facet joints at the back of the vertebra. Uh, and so you've got a superior facet at the top of the back of the vertebra and an inferior facet at the bottom of the back of the vertebra. And in between the superior facet and the inferior facet, there's a bit of bone and that's called the pars interarticularis, or in other words, the bit of bone in between the facet joints. Right. That's literally the translation to English. Ah. So anyway, um, that's the back, right? And if you can imagine that the that spinal bone, you know, with the bone under it is getting bent fully forward to its full extent forward and then fully backward to its full extent backward. Well, what happens is the, the, the inferior facet from that vertebra bumps into the superior facet from the one below it, right? As it goes into a backbend. And so every time it goes into a backbend, those two vertebrae, you know, bonk, bonk, bonk every once a second for 24 hours under high compression. Well, what happens is it gets a fracture in the pars interarticularis. So that's that was one of the most common injuries. And the other one was a disc bulge because as uh, the vertebra bends backwards and forwards, um, it 
places a lot of stress on the uh, annulus, the wall of the disc, particularly in the, a spine where the, the ligaments and fascia have been removed, the superficial ligaments and fascia. And so they found that those, those pig spines that bent forwards and backwards after full range, they injured the pars interarticularis and they injured the disc wall. Um, and they, the discs bulge. And what they found was the, the ones that didn't bend, right, so the ones that were uh, basically compressed equally but kept basically in neutral, they had the same number of injuries, but the injuries were not in the pars interarticularis and were not in the disc wall. The end plate of the vertebrae, vertebra fra- uh, like collapsed. So basically imagine you've, you know, you've got a stack of bricks you know, which are your vertebrae, and you're just, you're not bending them. You're just basically putting a 10-ton weight on the top of the stack, right? And they basically just collapse, right? So that's pretty much what happened in this experiment is they found that it was the compression, you know, how much compression you apply that determines how many injuries you get. And Mm. whether you bend or not doesn't increase or decrease your chance of injury. It only changes where you get injured. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, and, you know, we'll link to all of these studies in in the show notes. Mm. Yeah. So, um, mm. so, yeah. So, okay. Mm. So how do we, I'm just, I'm just trying to kind of join the dots. All right. So, all right. So, so far injury is multifactorial, right? So if, if you're, a, if you're not a, if you're not a, a dead pig spine that's been cut out and stuck in a jig, right? If you're an actual live human with emotions and thoughts and other things going on in your life and whatever, um, then you can't predict injury solely by the biomechanical forces that are on, you know, the joint, right? You have to also look at other factors. So just simply saying like applying this amount of biomechanical force to a joint is going to cause an injury is is just way, 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 way too simple, right? It's just, it's not, it doesn't account for, you know, some of the most important factors in injury risk, which we know to be psychological factors and also training load, like how much they've increased. I was going to say load, load yeah. tolerance, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but, you know, biomechanics is part of, you know, what contributes to injury risk, but it's, it's certainly not the, not all of it. And it's probably not the biggest part. Um, and, you know, we say, we've seen that posture, uh, neck posture is unrelated to disc bulge and unrelated to whether people develop symptoms. And we've seen that even in like laboratory studies with pig neck um, spinal segments that uh, posture, or in other words, how much they bent, you know, back and forwards was unrelated to how many injuries they got. Um, it was actually the compressive load that predicted injury in those experiments, but the, how much they bent predicted where they got injured. So the ones that bent got injured in certain places, the ones that didn't bend got just as many injuries, but just got them in different places. Um, so, you know, I guess, um, you know, the idea then that we should kind of like quote, you know, stabilize our neck, you know, and, and, and not, um, you know, not flex under load or whatever, uh, is sort of implicit in that. And, um, there was a study in 20, 2009, effectiveness of specific neck stabilization exercises or a general neck exercise program for chronic neck disorders, a randomized controlled trial in the journal rheumatology. And what they, so basically they had people with, you know, longstanding neck pain and they gave, there were two groups and they gave one group uh, general strengthening, you know, so just basically, um, you know, pushing your head against a, uh, a flex band, um, you know, from the front, from the side, from the back sort of thing, um, just to strengthen, strengthen all of the neck muscles. Um, and then there was a second group who got those same exercises plus 
neck stabilization. So they were taught how to sort of relax their sternocleidomastoid muscles and activate their deep neck flexors and, you know, do craniocervical flexion without yeah. blah, 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 all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then what they found was, guess what? Adding neck stabilization exercise to general neck strengthening did not improve outcome. So they didn't have any difference in pain or disability or function on any measures um, at the end of that sort of 12-week trial. So um, so the, the, the notion of neck kind of, quote, stabilization is, you know, really not supported by by evidence, basically. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, uh, another interesting one that I think, you know, is, uh, you know, is interesting, particularly in the light of that we that study I talked about a minute ago about uh, neck posture being unrelated to developing either disc bulge or symptoms over 20 years, but that they found that decreased lordotic posture of the neck was related to disc degeneration at C7-T1, but that was unrelated to symptoms. Well, um, there was this study from 1999 called Genetic Influences on Cervical and Lumbar Disc Gener- Degeneration, um, a magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging study in twins from the journal Arthritis and Rheumatism. Uh-huh. Um, and so this is fa- fan, uh, like yeah, fascinating. They get basically monozygotic twins, you know, like f- uh, fraternal fraternal twins, um, and uh, sorry, they're like identical twins. And then identical, they, yeah. yeah. And then they get dizygotic twins, you know, non-identical twins, uh-huh. and and they know that identical twins share a hundred percent of their DNA. 100% of their genes, whereas non-identical twins share only uh, 50% of their DNA, right? Uh-huh. So um, then they look at the rates of, you know, some disease, you know, or disorder or whatever occurring, you know, how prevalent it is in monozygotic twins compared to dizygotic twins. And what that tells you is like how much of that does disorder or disease is related to gene- genetics, right? Because we know that monozygotic twins share exactly double the amount of genes that dizygotic twins share. Um, and so what they find in this is that, you know, things like um, height is, as you would expect, very heritable, right? So, you know, whether your parents are tall or short has a very big influence on whether you're going to be tall or short. Um, and height is uh, found to be 88% heritable. You know, so like m- most of your height is explained by your parents' height. Is it is it parents or is it well? I'm I'm I must have been. I'm going to put my hand up and say I'm a bit confused on that one. I, for example, for example, my mother, my father, myself, all a very similar height. My two brothers and sister, really tall. Mm, well, that's the other twelve percent, yeah. I guess. All right, there you go. <laughs> Darn it, I could have got that weird 12% height, but I didn't. I got the standard genetics. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a gene-environment interaction as well, right? Because mm. you know, most most of us probably observed that, you know, each generation seems to be a bit taller than the previous generation as well. Right, right. Um, so anyway, <laughs> yeah. height's 88% heritable and cervical uh-huh. disc degeneration is 74% heritable. Ah, so what that suggests to me is that, you know, if we think about that sort of study I talked about a moment ago about the non-lordotic posture being related to cervical degeneration, mm-hmm. T7, uh, C7, mm-hmm. T1, well, maybe mm-hmm. cervical posture is mm. heritable. Mm. That's really interesting. I know that I actually have um, the straighter, the straighter cervical because 
many, many years ago, back in the day, you know, when it was it was all the hype to mm. go to a chiropractor 50 million times. And that, like I'm talking 2000, so I'm talking 21 years ago. Uh, and I was a, I was a youngin, um, you know, early 20s. And uh, the chiropractor back then, they used to, I don't know if they still do it. I'm sure there's there's many different chiropractors. Some will be more up to date than others. But back then they used to freak you the hell out and pretty much kind of sort of wanted you to get an x-ray, <laughs> what felt like weekly. And, you know, I was young, early, early 20s, as I said, and they totally freaked me out about my cervical, um, basically said it, you know, in their words, it was bending back the other way. Mm. And I, I now know that it just or, meant, you know, I didn't have the lordosis and in, I can see it now. In technical terms, as we like to say, you're fucked. Well, basically, and they, I also had uh, disc degeneration. Oh, shit. And <laughs> <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? Well, could you, but, but then you know how they're going to fix it. They, they were going to fix it by giving me 50 million bloody adjustments, yeah, awesome. which does little more than well, a bit of a sound. disc degeneration is um, probably all gone sound. by now. <laughs> I fell for that as well back in the – Did been, you? Yeah, it would have been about like 2002, 2003, yeah, was, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was the big rage back yeah. then. Yeah. I think in a lot of places it still is. But I went in and they said, oh, we can't we can't do nothing until we give you an X-ray. Yes, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, oh, these same. guys are really thorough. Yeah. And um, then they showed me the X-ray. I was like, oh, you know, this one's really stressed here. Look at uh-huh. that. Can you see that? And I was like, eh, that all looks the same to me. I can't say. I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was like, oh, no, this one's really bad, you know. Um, and yeah. so I took his word for it and he was like, oh, we need to, you know, do see you twice a week and put your neck in oh, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, and it's going to cost, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, mm-hmm. okay, great, go for it. Sounds awesome. You mm. know, preventative maintenance. Mm. Don't want to have trouble later mm. when I'm older. Mm. You know, don't mm. have bone on well, bone. Well, what was interesting for me is that I could very clearly see that my cervical did not look like, you know, the standard mm. the, the standard cervical. So it was quite like I remember at the time thinking, Oh yeah, I am I'm fucked. Yeah. Um but do you know what? Like I went a few times and I was young, I was in my twenties, I was having fun. I didn't really I was I, I actually just forgot about it after that and went on with my life. You're too busy and, like having like espresso it martinis was, or it was, no, what, yeah, no was, we weren't drinking espresso martinis. What nah. was it then? Like um, margaritas or like caparoscas? Oh, um It was I, I oh gosh, it was I was drink I think it was no, who knows. It was I then moved to Newtown. It was it was a fun time. Oh, it was, it would was have been beer then in Newtown. I was gonna say I don't think yeah, I don't remember really being able to afford yeah, to his red. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could yeah, exactly. I think I would just drink whatever. But yeah. anywho, the moral of the story is my neck's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I've probably definitely got disc degeneration. Yeah, so what? So do a lot of people. It's really normal. <laughs> Back to this, you know, okay, the camp, you know, we've got the, yeah, doesn't matter. I've been doing whatever with my headrest for years. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I guess, a little like me and my <laughs> my straight cervical. haven't really mm-hmm. thought about mm-hmm. it, to be honest, since about 2001, mm-hmm. right? And I'm fine. Cool? Okay. Then we've got the other camp that's, as I said, burning down the house because – People like us are going around and saying, hey, it's okay to have your head dressed up if you're doing an inversion. It's okay to mm. have your head elevated if you're doing an inversion on the mat. Mm. Oh, my God, you guys are dangerous. Mm. So I think this is where we need to to bring it home. It's mm. like, what do we know? Yeah. Let's bring it. How, yeah. do we, how, do we, how do we conclude the essay? 
All right. Well, we've, uh, we can look at some specific injury rates in people who bend the shit out of their necks is what we can hey, do. Let's so, do it. Um, so firstly, looking at uh, injury rates in fitness facilities. So um, this is a paper from 2015 called Epidemiology of Hospital-Treated Injuries Sustained by Fitness Participants um, in the Research Quarterly for Exercise and Sport. And what they found was that uh, injuries in aerobics were generally females, because I imagine more females do aerobics. They were generally aged 30, 25 to 34 years with injuries to the lower limbs and due to falls. So, you know, in aerobics classes, step classes, Zumba classes, whatever, how do people get injured? They fall over. Um, and resistance training injuries, generally male participants, 78%, aged 15 to 24 years and with injuries to the upper limbs caused by being hit, struck or crushed by weights or fellow exercisers. <laughs> so I can just imagine some of the oh, idiot wow. young fellow men in the gym <laughs> throwing dumbbells at each other or who knows what. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, uh, so basically, you know, people get injured in aerobics by falling over. People get injured in resistance training by dropping shit on themselves or other people drop shit on them, right? It's like that's how the people get injured. The other equipment cases were equally distributed by gender. They occurred most commonly in people aged 15 to 24 years with injuries to the lower limbs and due to falls being the most uh, common. So legs and falls and across all categories, dislocations, sprains and strains were the most common injury types. So it doesn't say anything there about disc bulges in the neck due to doing uh, inversions. Um, but, um, and in fact, you know, most of those are, you know, to do with falling over or shit dropping on you, right? It's not actually, <laughs> you know, doing the exercise wrong or whatever. <sighs> Um, and there's another one here called the cause from 2015, different one called the causes of injuries sustained at fitness facilities presenting to Victorian emergency departments, identifying the main culprits in a journal called injury epidemiology um, from 2015 for Gray et al. And what they found was injuries due to overexertion were the most common overall at 36%, as well as the main cause of injuries related to general free weight activities and group exercise classes. Crush injuries due to falling weights were common for all free weight activities. Falls and awkward landings were common causes of injuries during group exercise classes. Trips and falls were common throughout facilities as well as from cardiovascular equipment from more specific loads. People fell off the treadmill, basically. So, <laughs> just imagine. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh. I don't know why I find it so comedic Working to in think the of it. Emergency room on a you know Saturday morning while the gym's oh, you know, pumping. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it would really. You can imagine it would really hurt. Like I, there's been times where I've like been doing sp you know sprintables at, at full you, you know yeah. max. And you're like, oh shit, I can't run fast enough. <laughs> yeah, and and that whole you grab the sides of yeah. the. The size of it and yeah. jump. You, yeah. you know, there's been a few times where I've, I, you know, I've had a close. Yeah, you could have been one of those people. Planted. Could have been one of those people. And there's the classic one. I'm sure. I'm sure most of our listeners will have seen this. You may or may not have, Raf. But there was one doing the social media rounds. Um, where there was a reformer in oh, a gym yeah, setting. The, the oh, yeah, and the CCT one, footage yeah. of the guy that gets on the reformer and he's got all the springs on and he yeah. puts his feet, feet in the straps. Yeah. Well, I don't know that he meant to go into right. short spine. I'm thinking if he's got in with all all springs on and feet in straps, he's maybe not mm, like – I thought he probably thought he was just going to have a bit of a stretch yeah. and next minute it flips him. Over. Oh. Right. Anyway, I shouldn't – you shouldn't – I don't know why I laugh at that. You shouldn't really laugh. Um, and oh, we shouldn't laugh at anyone having 
Um, I know. So, well, it's, so I guess, you kind of laugh at yourself, don't you, when you when you take a tumble or right. do something, you you laugh at yourself. Yeah, I think. Yeah. You know, um, I, 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 oh. So basically, the picture that comes out of those two studies about the causes of injuries in fitness facilities basically is from people either you know tripping over you know whatever or basically being idiots in the weight room if you're a young male. Right, right. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and being idiots, not doing exercises wrong, literally dropping weights on yourself or on other people. Like that's that's <laughs> or over. Well, that's one of your big. I mean, I know you know when I've done a couple of workouts with you, Ralph, at your home gym, you've got some. You know, there's some strict protocols yeah. around when you when you, you when you unrack the weight, you have to say feet out from under, feet out from under, because yeah. uh, our friend Luke Postlethwaite, shout out to Luke Postlethwaite. Uh, taught me a valuable lesson when he dropped a 25 kilo weight plate on his foot and broke his foot um, that uh, you should not have your feet underneath the weight plate when you're unracking it. Yeah. Oh, and, and I mean, and if we put that in a Pilates context, he might be one of those, uh, he might be one of those people in the study. He might be the study. Well, it's, I mean, I'm putting in Pilates context. It's similar to, you know, you don't, you keep your foot out from the pedal on your wonder chair before you Step on it with your other foot because that's a, a great way it to was about crush in 2015, your foot as well. It was about in 2015 when he broke his foot and he's in Victoria, so you never know. He, he <laughs> might be one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> there um, you go. So, wow. All right. So then we have – all right. So now we come to sort of some – looking at some particular activities in sports, right? So, you know, one of the things that is widely kind of in, you know, misunderstood, I think, or, you know, widely believed by a lot of people who don't do – CrossFit is that CrossFit's super dangerous, you know, and I used to have this view myself that, you know, in CrossFit, they push you so hard, they don't teach you proper technique, they just make you lift more, 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 more. Yeah, it's a standard um, kind of miss. Yeah, and um, and so, you know, one day after I'd become a little bit more scientifically literate, I just, you know, was exposed to that idea again. I was thinking, I was thought, like, I wonder if that's true or not, you know, because um, you hear people say that all the time, but, you know, I, I wonder if it's true. And so I looked it up and I uh, found a study from 2018 called are injuries more common with CrossFit training than other forms of exercise? <laughs> um, and what they found was no. CrossFit participants have no more injuries than any other sport. So they have the same number of injuries as, as people who lift weights or, you know, play, you know, do other sports that are of similar nature, right? Which is to say, not many. So weightlifting, um, you know, as in lifting weights in a gym, is is very a very safe sport, you know, in terms of the, 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 the sports that are, um, you know, um, most, you're most likely to get injured in, um, you know, weight lift, you know, lifting weights in a gym is like way down the list next to freaking golf and ballroom dancing, you know, literally. Um, yeah. So, all right. So CrossFit where they're throwing rates around and people are yelling at you to put more weight on the bar and do another five reps, like, yeah, it's no more dangerous than doing anything else. Um, and mm. then, so then there are, there are, you know, I was, I was, then I was trying to rack my brain and think, okay, what are the, what are the actual activities where people actually weight bear on fully flexed neck, right? So uh, where you actually get into that same position where basically the headrest is up and you're doing a overhead exercise, like you're basically doing a rollover with a towel under your head. Um, and there's been no studies in Pilates on that. Um, so it just hasn't been looked at, but um, there in yoga, there are a couple of poses um, where you are in that exact same rollover position. One of them called is is called halasana or plow pose, where you it's it's the end position of the rollover, right? So you 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 start lying on your back on the floor, then you lift your legs up 
legs go overhead, you roll back uh, until you're resting on your neck and shoulders, your head and neck and shoulders, and your feet are touching, uh, your legs are straight and your feet are touching the floor behind your head, right? And that that's halasana pose, which is, it's literally the exact position of, you know, the, the end position of rollover when you've finished rolling over. Um, and then there is another yoga pose that is uh, directly related to that called Kana Padasana. And that is the same pose, but then you bend your knees, right? So you're in the fully rolled over position, then you bend your knees and you tuck your knees in by your ears, right? So you're basically in the roll, you're in a rolling like a ball position, right? Mm. But you're in the roll, you're rolled over, right? And your, your, your knees are by your ears and you're, I mean, I've done, I used to practice Ashtanga yoga um, for a, a few years, many, many years ago. And I remember doing this pose and it always like felt a wonderful stretch along my back, but it was like so uncomfortable because you can't breathe, like you're fully flexed. And, and so you just can't breathe in. Um, so it was always like counting down the milliseconds until I was allowed to come out of it. And they say, stay there for five breaths. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so, uh, and in a, these two poses are part of, uh, in Ashtanga yoga, which is, uh, sort of a, a vinyasa style of yoga is, uh, they're part of what's called the primary series. So they're basically, you know, the beginner series of um, Ashtanga yoga and these are the these are inversions so they're kind of they come at the end of the practice and in Ashtanga yoga if you you know when you start out you you learn this primary series and you know you start at the start and there's you know there's I can't remember how many like maybe 40 or 50 exercises you know poses asanas in in the sequence and you start at the start and you start with sun salutations and you work through some standing poses and some seated poses and some lying poses and some inversions and then and back bends, and then that's the end. But you you go through the the sequence only as far as you can go, right? So the the poses kind of get more difficult as you go through, and so you know a lot of people get up to a certain point, and they're like, oh crap, now I have to put my head my legs behind my head, and that <laughs> that's kind of hard. Mm-hmm. So I, they get kind of get you know stalled at one particular pose. But even if you're a beginner. Right, so you just do your very first sun salutations, and you can't even get to the next pose. Say right, then you go straight to the inversions. Right, so so even if you're a beginner and you don't do the advanced poses, you still do these inversions. Right, so these are like standard; everyone does them from day one of their yoga practice um, poses, the halasana and the kanapadasana. Um, and in Ashtanga yoga, particularly, I'm sure that those poses are also practiced in other forms of yoga. But I know from personal experience and from just looking it up on the interwebs that uh, they are, you know, a standard part of the Ashtanga yoga primary series. Um, and uh, so. Um, there was a study on uh, the injury risk in Ashtanga yoga in particular, and what they found was that uh, this was called, uh, from 2019, Injury in Yoga Asana Practice Assessment of the Risks in the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies, and they found that uh, yoga has a lower risk of injury than most other physical activities. Um and this is a quote, actually, quote, yoga has lower risk of injury than most other physical activities, and most yoga injuries are non-serious. The top four injury locations in yoga are, from most common to least common, knees, lower back, shoulders, and hips slash hamstrings. Ah, they don't mention the neck. They don't mention the neck. So not only does yoga have a low risk of injury, like it's more safe than most other physical activities, Right, mm-hmm. and and most of the injuries in yoga are non-serious. Neck isn't even one of the common injuries in yoga, even though in yoga injuries are very uncommon. Right, so neck injuries don't really happen in yoga. People hurt their knees, their lower back, their shoulders, and their hips in yoga. So um, 
Yeah, so, mm. so you know, so, mm. right, so all of that sort of halasana and going, rolling over onto your neck and whatever. And, and in yoga, they hold that for five breaths, right? In, in Ashtanga yoga, you go over and you roll over and you hold that position for five breaths. And then, you know, often you, I would have someone come around and adjust me and which basically means push you deeper into the pose, right? Um, you know. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and, uh, they so, like doing that. So you've got your full mm. body weight plus often someone else's additional strength pushing you into that position, like, and basically that's not a blip on the injury radar. Um, so then I thought, okay, yoga, what else? What else do people do? Extreme neck positions under high load. I thought break dancing. So, um, uh, and it, I struck gold on this one because it turns out that for, for whatever reason, there are a shitload of studies on break dancing and injury risk. So I don't know why, but there are quite a few. And so I found one from 2009 called Breakdance Injuries and Overuse Syndromes in Amateurs and Professionals from the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And what they, they this was a massive study. They studied over 380,000 hours of training in breakdancing. Um, so like, just think of like, imagine the amount of work that goes into that. They studied 380,000 hours of training. Um, and wow. they found the most common injuries were from from most common to least common, wrist, hip slash thigh, ankle slash foot, and elbow. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah. Nothing. But not neck? Not neck. We're seeing a theme here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, another one called from 2020 called How Do the New Olympic Sports Compare with the Traditional Olympic Sports, Injury and Illness at the 2018 Youth Olympic Summer Games in Buenos Aires? Um, British Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, 2020. Uh, and what they found, so they compared all of the, you know, traditional Olympic sports like, um, you know, triathlon or wrestling or whatever, and then these new sports that they've just introduced in the last couple of years, of which breakdancing was one, and badminton was another one, you know, a few other ones in there. Um, and so they, they compared 36 sports, um, and of the 36 sports at the 2018 Youth Olympic Games, breakdancing was 26th on the ranking of, uh, you know, percentage of injuries per, you know, 100 competitors sort of thing. So it was the 26th out of 36th most dangerous sport, or in other words, it was the 11th most safest sport <laughs> out of 36. So it was, it was they have, breakdancers have fewer injuries than divers. These are like Olympic divers, uh, futsal players, cyclists, beach volleyball players, sailors, tennis players and badminton players, right? They have fewer injuries than all of those sports and they have comparable injury rates with canoeing and golf, right? So breakdancing is fucking safe. <laughs> it's really safe. Mm. Um, okay, so I think, you know, <laughs> the headrest up. Come on, guys. Let's let it go. If you if you want to have it up, have it up. If you want to put it down, put it down. <laughs> well, hold on. What about wrestlers? No? Don't we want to talk about wrestlers? Oh, yeah. Um, yep. Wrestlers, Wrestlers know, Bridge. Yeah, tell us yeah. about the Wrestlers Bridge, Chloe. What so, um, yeah, so the Wrestlers Bridge, well, well, my understanding, and I'm not a wrestler, <laughs> but my understanding of what I've read about it, um, because I got curious due to uh, the Wrestlers Bridge exercise, uh, the Joseph Pilates Wrestlers Bridge exercise on the Reformer, and uh, I had started doing it in my own body, started teaching it, started posting about it, and, of course, uh, next Next minute, the Pilates police freak out. Oh, no, look at that loaded cervical flexion, cervical extension, whatever, you know, loaded cervical loading. Your chiropractor would be proud. 
is what people are, it will, might help, help me get my bloody curves back, right? Mm. But anyway, <laughs> the bottom line is, is it was like, like alarm, alarm, alarm. Um, and I'm like, oh, come on, you guys. Step one. If you've ever done Wrestler's Bridge on the Reformer, so Wrestler's Bridge on the Reformer, you've got one full spring, you've got the headrest up because <laughs> you've got some non-slippy pads on the headrest so your head doesn't slip off. Um, you are, you're kind of in like, you kind of get into it a similar sort of kind of way if you were going to try and get into high bridge except that your heels are on the Reformer. Your crown of your head is uh, resting on top of the headrest. You've got your hands in straps and you are pulling straps down and up. Okay, and you're in you're in the back bend. So it's sort of like now, if, if Hundred and Highbridge had a love child, it would be like that, yeah, bridge. that that's pretty pretty much it. And those that know me well know that I am a walking human plank, and back bends aren't my jam. And I've never done a full high bridge in my life, not because I think there's anything wrong with it or I'm scared of it. I literally just haven't been able to push my body, contort my body into that shape yet. Um, but for me, Restless Bridge feels freaking awesome. I feel, you know, like a ba- badass. I can do it. I've, and, and anyway, cut a long story short, if you've actually done it in your body, a hell of a lot's going on in your lower limbs with it, basically. You're pushing like hell downwards into the carriage with your legs. Yeah. They, ain't, they ain't that much actually going on in your neck anyway. So super low load uh, kind of interpretation of the wrestler's bridge, which is actually a boxing drill. It's boxing, but also in wrestling. It's a wrestling oh, Sorry, 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 wrestling, wrestling, sorry. Ah, oh, boxing, yeah. wrestling, boxing, wrestling, both, right? Uh well, is that where I'm getting confused, or just wrestling? My personal experience is I learned it from a guy who was a wrestler, and he came and did boxing at our boxing gym, but he was the only one who ever did it. Yeah. So. Sorry, my brain. Sorry, guys. I, I just think that was just my brain being a bit tired. But um, my understanding of the movement in uh, wrestling, yes, is that it was developed so that instead of um, you're being pinned down by your opponent basically flat on your back, e.g. you've lost, you're actually able to – Kick your back arched off the ground with a component load bearing over the top of you and you're resting on the crown of your head. And you're not just there still, you're writhing around, you're moving around in circles, you're squirming, you're doing whatever you can to get the dude or the woman off you to get your opponent off you, right? Um, And there's also a lot of my understanding of it is that uh, wrestlers do – you know, they do drills to strengthen themselves in yeah. that position on the top of their head, specifically loading their neck. Yeah. So that basically, like it's not like, oh, I'm going to avoid loading my neck. It's no like, I'm going to specifically load yeah. my neck. You just basically, you're, you're lying on your back. You're going to, like you're going into a hybrid, like a wheel pose in yoga, mm. say, feet are flat on the floor, you lift up into a sort of a back bend, but your hands aren't on the floor, it's the crown of your head on the floor and your neck is fully extended and then you push back and forward with your legs, just like you do in the Pilates exercise, you push back and forward. But in in the wrestler's version, like you're not on a moving carriage, right? So you're not pushing the carriage in and out, you're bending your neck back and forwards with mm. your leg strength. So it's really, you know, end range cervical flexion and extension on a fully load-bearing, you know, in a fully load-bearing position. And they also do a flexion version where you do it sort of face down um, and, you know, bend back and forth to strengthen it in that position as well. Mm. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty mm. extreme exercise. And there's, a, and there's a version of that on the reformer as well. Yeah. And yeah. then, of course… Head, head front, no hands is like, what it's called. Like you say, Chloe, like they're doing it in practice because they're practicing because that's exactly what they do in actual competition. When someone's lying mm. when you're trying to pin you on your back, 
Um, mm. You know, you can arch up using the strength of the back of your neck. So mm. um, what we found, what I found was in this study from 2007 called Descriptive Epidemiology or Epidemiology of Collegiate Men's Wrestling Injuries, National Collegiate Athletic Association Injury Surveillance System, um, they did a survey of college wrestlers from 1988 to 2004. They surveyed 286 colleges in the US, right? So for, from 1988 to 2004. So that is uh, 16 years. Um, 286 colleges. So a huge number of wrestling matches and injuries and athletes, you know, in that sample. And they, the least, so they, they classify the injuries into uh, injuries that were contact injuries, you know, so someone fell on you, through you, whatever, versus non-contact injuries. Um, and then they also classified them injuries that happened in uh, competition versus injuries that happened in practice. And so in terms of, uh, you know, comparison for, you know, doing shoulder bridge on the reformer with your headrest up, I think uh, non-contact injuries are the most appropriate in a comparison there, um, and also injuries that occur in practice. And the thing with practice is it's more controlled, whereas in 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 a wrestling competition, you've got someone actually you know trying to throw you to the ground. So um, the in this study, they found that the least number of injuries were non-contact injuries during practice, and that was only twelve percent of all injuries were non-contact injuries during practice. And of non-contact injuries that occurred during practice, right? So of those you know least number of injuries, twelve percent of all injuries. Of those, head and neck were the least common site for injury at only 12.5% of all those non-contact injuries during practice, right? So 12% of 12% of the injuries. So basically like, you know, one and a bit percent of all wrestling injuries um, were uh, head slash neck. And this is not just neck, this is head slash neck, right? So they might have got, got a concussion or, you know, broken nose or whatever, and that would still go into this category. Yeah, so wrestlers don't have a lot of neck injuries. Um, and then there was this other study from 2007 called Descriptive Epidemiology of Collegiate, oh, sorry, uh, not that one. This was from a 10-year study of injuries in Korean wrestlers. And what they found was that, quote, most injuries were mild and were in the legs. Um, and they found, uh, so the n- number of injuries that occurred um, from most common to least common were lower extremities, so the legs, 38% of injuries, the upper extremities, 27% of injuries, the trunk, 25% of injuries, and the head and neck area, 10% of injuries. So that's the least injured area in this study as well. Um, so yeah, basically like yeah, uh, yeah, CrossFit folk um, who supposedly get injured more don't yoga people who do like literally the same move um don't get injured uh break dancers who do the same move but they jump into that position then do spinning you know on their head and end up in really awkward twisted positions don't get injured in the neck uh and don't get injured much at all overall and then wrestlers also um don't get really injured in the neck it's the least common site for injuries in wrestling so uh, I think, you know, taken all together, that really suggests that this is not a vulnerable um, position. Um, and, yeah, I'd just like to finish up. There's only one study I've got left in my arsenal, <laughs> which is um, 
a uh, from 2009. It's called the Burden and Determinants of Neck Pain in the General Population: Results of the Bone and Joint Decade 2000-2010 Task Force on Neck Pain and Its Associated Disorders. Um, this is from the Journal of Manipulative and Physiological Therapeutics. Uh, so this is the, like the best evidence summary from the 2010 Bone Joint Task Force. And um, what they found was that the risk factors for neck pain were having more children. How's that? So for each every child you have mm. beyond zero, if you're a woman, your neck pain risk increases. Wow. Yeah. I think a lot of mothers out there are going, yeah, duh. <laughs> Um, being 45 to 54 years old. So neck pain seems to peak in that sort of 45 to 54 year old group and then decline. So older people actually have less neck pain than people in that age group and younger people have less neck pain as well. Um, Being out of work dramatically increases your chance of neck pain. Smoking, uh, history of low back pain, poor self-assessed health, poor psychological health. Uh, they found that neck pain was 48% heritable um, and they found there's no correlation with degeneration. Wow. Yeah. So we're back to it's complex, it's multifactorial, it's to do with lots of factors and uh, biomechanics is really not really the most important factor or probably for a lot of people even a factor at all. Uh, and even if it were a factor – um, we've looked at, you know, a whole bunch of evidence on people who do yoga and breakdancing and wrestling and don't hurt their fucking necks. So I reckon it's totally, totally, totally safe to leave your headrest up. I think we've thoroughly explored that. I hope so. Well, I yeah. hope people feel like we've, you know, because when, you know, when you and I learned this, right, and I'm a bit embarrassed to say that when you learned it, you learned it from me. Right, <laughs> but when we learned this, we were just told like that's the way it is. Don't ask questions. You know, that's just that's the rule, right? There was no explanation given. There was no context given. It was like don't do that. It's dangerous, right? So we and we just were like, okay, yeah, accept that. But you know what I what I hope for you know that we can give to people is, as part of this podcast is and what I hope to give people in our courses as well. Obviously, we've got more time in the course, so we can go into more depth, but is to really kind of get our hands into the potting mix, you know, like to put our hands into the pot and like dig it and dig, keep digging and keep digging until we get to the bottom and we can see the bottom of the pot. And we're like, ah, there's nothing more to know about this. Like this is, this is it. Like we've seen everything and, and, and we've kind of, we understand all that there is to, you know, to know about this topic. And there, you know, there might be things, there are plenty of things about this topic that aren't known. Right. So, doesn't mean we completely understand the topic, but we understand, you know, what's what's currently known about it. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, we've been able to provide this, you know, for you if you're listening in this episode, and that we try and do that in in, in a lot of our episodes, where you feel like, ah, okay, so now I, I have a sense of what the evidence is, what the state of the art is in the scientific literature, you know, what does what do humans know about what causes neck pain and neck injury, and what doesn't? And you know, it's multifactorial. It's complex. It, there's a lot of psychosocial factors. It's heritable. It's to do with smoking. It's to do with how many kids you've got, your age, you know, like sleep, you know, and and apparently it doesn't really make a difference if you do, you know, neck flexion under load. Mm. Yeah. Hopefully, mm. hopefully that kind of gives you confidence that, you know, don't just take our word for it. Like this mm. is, this is what science knows. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
Awesome. Yeah. So perhaps this will now pop 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 that to bed. Maybe. Well, I, I hope. Or at the very least, it will spark potentially some more uh, hopeful, uh, critical dis- discourse. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know I did most mm. of the talking. That's probably why I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, that, no that, that, that wasn't a dig at you. Um, but, you know, but like, people, you know, everyone likes talking, right? And, um, you know, the, the, more, the more you get to talk in the conversation, the more you think the other person's a brilliant conversationalist. <laughs> I love it. Well, I've learned a lot. This is really interesting. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for listening, everyone. Keep, uh, uh, you know, we know, look, my obviously my favourite uh, part is uh, Chloe's DMs. So <laughs> um, in order for me to continue to enjoy my favourite part, Please, uh, can you please, my DMs are looking a little lonely at the moment. Shoot me off some DMs this week so I've got something to talk about next week. And, uh, yeah, if you haven't read Cage Line yet, Don't better do it. Up. There's your second push-up. Mm. Okay, hey, um, thanks, everyone. Well, <laughs> and uh, if you're sitting there and you're, you're basking in a glow of inner warmth, you know, go and freaking rate and review us. Like, talk, I'm talking to you. Yes, <laughs> you. You. Do it now. <laughs> Like, don't, <laughs> don't just think, oh, someone else will do it. No, you do it. You are someone yeah, else. Yeah, they won't. You need to do it. Thank you. Do you. It. Yeah. And write, <laughs> us, write us a review. Don't just hit the five-star thing. I mean, do that. That's awesome. But write us a review. Tell us what's awesome about it. Tell everyone else what's awesome about it because that helps other people find this and that helps – and then that will help to elevate health literacy in the Pilates world and will help our clients. So, um, yeah, good talk, Thanks Chloe. for listening. Thanks. Thanks, Rash. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification 
menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.